you. Uh, yeah, so good to be here. Thanks for having us. And as I said, we, as Tim said, we've been sort of sneaking along a couple of times. So um, thanks for letting us do that as well. Um, I don't know what your favorite season is. Uh, my favorite season is summer. I absolutely love the summer. In fact, we just got back from our um, family holiday and we were away in the sun for two weeks, as you can tell from my fabulous tan. If you haven't seen me without a tan, you'll know, I'm normally very pale and freckly, so this is good for me. This tan is really good. Um, I just love being warm. I love the sunshine. I just love that feeling of warmth. I'm a bit of a vitamin D junkie. And um, my friends often take the mick out of me because at our home in London, we don't have a home at the moment, that's another story, but in our home in London, I always had the heating on the whole year round. Our house was a bit like a sauna. Um, it was always warm. I, I just loved it. In fact, Tim used to say that the reason I insisted on having the heating on all year round is so that it forced him to wander around in his underwear. That's, uh, that's actually true. Not that he used to wander around in his underwear all the time. but. And I've been thinking a lot recently about seasons, not earthly seasons, but seasons of life. And as I look back um, over my life so far, I can see that my life has been divided up into seasons, and seasons have been marked by um, certain events that have taken place or certain feelings that I was experiencing. Some seasons have felt long, some seasons have felt short. And as we were just saying, 2015 is a season change moment for our family. We've just moved to Birmingham, as you know, and so there's a lot of change going on, change of schools, change of home, uh, change of adventure, change of vision, and it's exciting. It's a season change moment for us as a family, but it's also a season change moment for me as an individual. Uh, we've got four children, and I've spent predominantly the, the last eight years at home with our kids, and in a few weeks time our little boy Judah who's almost three starts nursery and that's a bit of a season change moment for me because I'm going to be stepping out of the home and into leadership alongside Tim and that's something that I have been itching to do for quite a long time and as I look back over that particular season that season of seven to eight years it's a season that for me was defined by motherhood. Motherhood became such and is such a massive part of my identity. And yet, I don't know what some of you here who are parents or mothers in particular, what your experience is, but I found it a strangely paradoxical season. When Phoebe, our eldest, was born just um, almost eight years ago, I was overwhelmed with love. I mean, bowled over with love, overwhelmed as I held this tiny baby in my arms, something that I'd longed for, dreamed of, hoped for for so long, and she was just amazing. And so I felt overwhelmed with love, but I also felt overwhelmed, totally overwhelmed. And the paradox was that at times I felt lonely and yet desperate for space. I felt bored at times, and yet there was no escape. At times, I felt void of significance, 
and yet burdened with responsibility. And the ultimate paradox was the fact that I felt 100% called, totally and utterly called to be at home with our children, raising them, investing in them, nurturing them. And yet, on many occasions in that season, I felt frustrated. I felt resentful. I felt spiritually dry. Please don't hear me wrong. I don't have one single regret about the way I've spent the last eight years. Staying at home has been a great privilege. There's, there's nothing that I regret about that decision. I'm deeply grateful for these gifts that God has given me. There have been many, many wonderful, beautiful, life-enriching moments that I wouldn't trade for anything else. But to be honest, it's a season that hasn't been without its struggles. I can remember a particular time when I was pregnant with our third child, um, who is gorgeous. It's nothing personal about her. Um, but at that particular time, I felt a million miles from God. I felt so spiritually dried up, so far from God. And I can remember um, going to our church week away, where we all gather together, thousands of us, um, for a church week away. And it's, it's a spiritual high. You know, in the calendar, it's one of those spiritual highs. And I just felt nothing. I can, I can remember being in the worship times and I could barely sing, let alone lift my hands. I just felt so distant and I can recall hearing one of the speakers give this dynamic talk and she was saying, you know, let's go and change the world together. Let's go for it. And all I wanted to do was crawl under my chair and hide. I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand why I was finding it so hard. Something that I had longed for. Why, in spite of all the joys, all, all the amazing things about enjoying our children, I was finding it hard inside. Something that women have been doing for centuries. I couldn't get past the fact that I felt forgotten, overlooked, unnoticed, unappreciated. I was struggling to see that there might be something beyond this particular season. My only prayer at that time was, God, could I just thrive and not merely survive? I don't know what season you're in right now. It might be you're in a season of great fulfillment. It might be that you're in a challenging season. It might be that for you, this is a waiting season. Perhaps it's a season where there's confusion, where you're looking for direction and you're struggling to see a clear path. Perhaps it's a hard season. Perhaps for you, it's a season marked with pain, with doubt, with unanswered questions. Perhaps right now, you are simply hanging on for dear life. I imagine for a lot of people, your season doesn't look like mine has. But what I've learned is that calling is not always comfortable and that the season is not always sunny. You know, our 
kids, they love Old Testament stories. We've got story tapes and we read them from the Bible and we share them, Tim and I, together. They love them. They love the drama of those Old Testament stories, those characters like Daniel and Esther, David, Ruth, Samson. They love, they love um, discovering the twists and the stir- turns in the story. What's going to happen next? How's God going to show up? They love it. And I love particularly the story of Joseph. I'm a bit of a, a musicals fan. It's a confession there. I love musicals. And so the story of Joseph particularly appeals to me. In fact, I'm showing off a little bit now. But uh, when I was in school, I was chosen to be in, um, in the junior choir for a professional production of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And... It was going to run for a few weeks during the summer holidays, and I loved it. I just thought it was the best thing ever. And I can remember having this crush on the young, blonde, tanned actor who was playing Joseph. And I just, I just thought one day he might notice me. And now, now as I look back, I recognize that he probably wasn't of a heterosexual persuasion and definitely wasn't interested in me. But when we think about Joseph's life, there's there's a life that was marked by season change. At the beginning of the story, we find this teenage boy, Joseph, in this slightly dysfunctional family. Joseph's mum, Rachel, dies giving birth to his only maternal younger sibling. And so his dad adores him because he reminds him of the wife that he's lost, and yet his older brothers hate him. They hate him because he reminds them of the fact that they're not the favorites, that their father will never love them the way that he loves Rachel's boys. And then Joseph gets these dreams, and Joseph is young enough and foolish enough to share these audacious visions with his already slightly agitated brothers, and it doesn't go down very well. And so the next opportunity these brothers have, they want to deal with Joseph. And so they seize an opportunity when Joseph and the brothers, they're miles from home, and Joseph is there without the immunity of his dad's protection, and this 17-year-old boy is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's taken miles away. Season change moment for Joseph. He's bought as a slave by Potiphar, and he's put to work. And I wonder, as I was reading that story, I wonder how long Joseph waited for his father to show up, the do- show up at the door and rescue him. How long did he wait thinking that Jacob would turn up and everything would be okay? At what point did he just give up hope and just get his head down and start working hard? which is what he did. And ultimately, Joseph was put in charge, and then another catastrophic twist in the story. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of sexual assault, and the Bible tells us that Joseph is thrown into a dungeon. The season just got darker. And once again, Joseph works hard. He's put in charge, but he has to wait two years in that prison before the season changes again. 
And seemingly out of nowhere, this opportunity arises and Joseph is suddenly taken from dungeon to throne room. And he stands before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at that time, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Joseph's interpretation of this dream becomes this blueprint for a rationing plan that is going to save the Egyptians from starvation. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of this whole operation and it's safe to say that that is another season change moment for Joseph. After almost 14 years of being brutally betrayed by his brothers, 14 years of endurance, 14 years of hardship, everything changes. And the next 14 years of Joseph's life, despair turns to hope. Loneliness turns to love. Futility turns to fruitfulness. Poverty turns to abundance. And we know ultimately, after a bit more drama, Joseph is reunited with his father and with his brothers. But I want to look at a a couple of things along the way in this story of Joseph. In Genesis 41, we learn that Joseph gets married in those 14 years of of plenty and goodness. Joseph gets married. He has two sons, and he names his second son Ephraim. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. That's the meaning of his son's name. As Joseph looks back at the seasons of his life, seasons that are darker than probably most of us in this room will ever experience, he can look back and say, God has made me fruitful. God has prospered me in the land of my sorrow. God made something wonderful out of something so hard. I have no idea what lies ahead for us in this next season. We have hopes and dreams and desires for this next season, but we have no idea what lies ahead. But I want Joseph's attitude of heart. I want to walk into each and every season, whether it's summer, winter, storm, drought, utterly confident that God is in control. In Jeremiah 17, 7, it says this, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. And the question I've been asking is, what will it take for me to be like Joseph? What will it take for me to be like that tree so that I won't fear when the heat comes, so there isn't worry when the drought comes, so I I don't freak out when the circumstances of my life don't go according to my plan, to live a life that never fails to bear fruit. There's a key word in those verses from Jeremiah, trust. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And we see that Joseph had this trust. He trusted in God. He trusted that God was watching over him. And we can trust that God is watching over us. 
my kids love um, the movie The Lion King, and we have watched that movie over and over again. We know how the story ends, but every time we watch that movie, my son Simeon, just before the end, there's this moment where you've got the the protagonist Simba, the hero, and the baddie Scar, and they're going head to head uh, in this battle, and it looks like Scar, the baddie, has defeated Simba, the goodie. And we know how the story ends because we've watched it many times, but every time at that moment, my son Simeon, he's like, no, 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 what's going to happen? And I'm looking at him thinking, you're crazy, you know how the story ends. You know, we, in the 21st century, we have the luxury of being able to flip through the pages of Genesis, all the twists and the turns of Joseph's life, and we know how the story ends. And right at the end of the story, when Jacob is dying and has died, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, are petrified because they think this is the moment. Now Jacob has died. They think this is the moment that Joseph is going to repay them for all the bad things that they did to him. But this trust that Joseph has in God, it gives Joseph the insight to see that despite all that has happened, God is watching over him. Each season, each moment, God was watching. God was in control. And so Joseph turns to his brothers and says, don't be afraid. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And this word, meant. This word meant, it comes from a Hebrew verb which traces its meaning back to plait or to weave. And I heard about this place in Asia that makes the most beautiful saris, apparently the most beautiful saris in the world, intricate designs and patterns and amazing detail. And you'd think that these saris would be the product of some 21st century computer machine and But actually, the secret is this father and son team. And apparently, the father sits on this platform above the son, looking down at at, at the pattern as it's being created. And the son is next to the pattern, so he hasn't got the vantage point of the father. And the, the father is surrounded by all the spools and the threads, and the son has one job. The son is looking to his father, and every time the father nods an instruction, the son moves the shuttle from one side to the other. That's all he does, and he repeats that process over hours and hours and hours until the sari is complete. You see, the son's job is pretty simple. It's just obedience to his father to that nod of instruction, trusting that despite the fact he can't see the full pattern emerging before him, trusting that his father's perspective is so much better than his own, so much clearer than his own. And you know, God takes all the threads, all the different parts of our lives, the good bits, all the bits that we're ashamed of, all the mistakes we've made, all the pain that other people have caused us, and he reweaves it into his story, into his plan. And with Joseph, his brothers, they had woven 
this plan of evil against Joseph. Potiphar's wife had meant evil against Joseph. But Joseph can see that God's plan was unveiling. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I heard about a woman who had been through a lot of trials in her life. A lot of bad stuff had happened to her, had been done to her, mistakes made. And she found herself being counseled by this wonderful nun. And they were having this conversation, this profound conversation, and the lady was pouring out all that had happened, all the, all the rubbish, all the stuff in her life. And they were walking through this garden together, looking at the flowers and the roses. And the nun who remained quiet for a long time just looked at the woman and said, you know what? God takes all the crap of our, in fact, the nun didn't use the word crap, but we'll say crap. God takes all the crap of our lives and he turns it into manure. But I imagine even for Joseph, those times as a slave and in prison, there must have been unanswered questions. There must have been, why God, moments. There must have been. And we know for all of us, there are moments in our lives where it's a, it's a why God moment. We don't get the outcome we hope for. We, we're praying for something and it, and it doesn't happen the way we want it to. Someone we love doesn't get better. We don't get the job. A relationship ends. And there are big theological questions surrounding the sovereignty of God in the context of suffering, not just in our own lives, but on a much bigger scale. But ultimately, we trust that our Father God has a much bigger perspective, an unimaginably bigger perspective than our own. We can trust in a God that holds all of time and eternity in his hands. We can trust in a God who knows how the story ends, not just the story of our own lives, but the story of the whole of humankind because we are part of a narrative that is so much bigger than our own lives. And through this narrative that we see in the Bible, we are pointed time and time again to a very simple instruction. Trust me. Trust me. We can trust that God is watching over us. But God doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just watch over us. He's not this distant, aloof God, but he chose to step down into humanity. In the person of Jesus Christ, he stepped down into humanity. He took our rubbish, our sin with him on the cross. He died and he was resurrected so that we might know new life. And then as he ascends into heaven, he promises to leave us with his spirit, his Holy Spirit that we can know and experience today. Today, this very day, we can know his presence. And through the presence of God, we can trust that God is walking with us. One of the areas of marital tension for Tim and I, might be the same for you, is the mobile phone. And we have found that uh, if we go on a date, it's best to switch the phone off. Because answering the phone on a date 
is a no-no. We've learned this lesson the hard way because once Tim and I went on a date to Stratford-upon-Avon, I love the theater, and um, we'd gone on this special date and we decided to have a meal in a restaurant before we were going off to the theater and we were sat in the restaurant together and we just ordered our food and Tim's phone rang and he answered it. Not a good move. I was pregnant, I think, at the time and slightly hormonal, so I'll give Tim the grace of that. But I was so cross. I couldn't believe that he had answered the phone. Not only had he answered the phone, but he carried on to have quite a long conversation. And so I'm sitting there beginning to seethe. And in the meantime, our food comes and I'm looking at him like, come on, are you serious? And he's having this conversation whilst also recognizing that he's probably got a very cross wife on his hands right now. And so I decide to do the only mature thing at that moment. I get out my mobile phone and I start to send pretend text messages because, you know, I'm like so above him, like as if I need to have a conversation with him anyway. So I'm starting to send pretend text messages on the phone. Tim then finishes his conversation and I don't look up. I totally ignore him because I'm very mature. And at that point, Tim sends me a text message. <laughs> so I get this text message that, that says, hi, babe, how's the date? He's trying to break the ice with a bit of humor. And so I reply to him, the food's great. The companies, actually, I used the word that the nun used at that point. I will say that. You see, I want him to be present. That's why the mobile phone gets in the way, because when we're having that time together, I want him to be present. I have to say, he's not the only guilty party on that one. And with our God, we want him to be present. We need him to be present. And the promise that we're given in the Bible is I will always be with you. It's interesting as we look at Joseph's life, at two of the darkest moments in the story, the moment when he's first sold into slavery and the moment where he's thrown into prison. Only twice, I think it's only twice in the story, the Bible makes a point of telling us God was with him. At his darkest moment, we're reminded God was with him. God is not just watching. God is walking with him. And we can trust that God is walking with us. God is watching over us. God is walking with us. But God is also working in us. You know, one of the things I struggled with most or struggle with at times in this motherhood season is that at times it can feel so hidden. It can feel so behind the scenes. You know, there's nobody that turns up on my door at 7 p.m. once all the kids are in bed and everyone's survived and we've had a good day that says, well done, Rachel, you did such a good job. Wouldn't that be amazing? I think I might set up that business just to go around mothers throughout the land and do that. And you know, there's, there's also a sense of mundane about it at times, like the same old, same old. But I, I know it's a long-term investment. I know what, what we're doing for our children. It's like a long-term investment. But most of the time in the short term, my life didn't feel like it was bearing much fruit, to be honest. I didn't feel much like that Jeremiah tree that never fails to bear fruit. And at times over those last seven, eight years, I've watched Tim, my husband who leads worship, I've watched him go off and 
lead worship in. He'd come back with tales of salvation and healing and God's glory. And all right, I'd look at Instagram and it, it would look like everybody else was bearing fruit all over the place. And the only fruit that I was bearing was the squashed banana on my trouser leg at that particular moment. And the temptation for me has been to think, okay, well, this is just an on-hold season with God. You know, this is just on-hold. And of course, in this season, there have been limitations. I can't just jump on an airplane to the other side of the world because that wouldn't be great for my kids if I did that all the time. Although to do that occasionally would be quite nice. But anyway, but I truly believe with God there are no on hold seasons. There are no on hold seasons with God. There is always fruit. And you know, some fruit, it's big, it's obvious, it's very clear to see. But, but did you know some of the most nutritionally, nutritionally rich fruit, it's the tiny berries. It's those tiny berries that grow and they're, and they're hidden from view and they're small. They're, they're obscured from view. And in us, sometimes the fruit that is the sweetest, that is the most good for us in a sense. It's that fruit that's cultivated when nobody sees. It's the fruit that's cultivated when you think you've got nothing left to give. It's the fruit that is birthed out of sacrifice. It's not fruit that's just limited to the four seasons that can only appear when the climate is just exactly right or when the conditions are favorable. No, this is good fruit. This is fruit that will last. And as we look at Joseph, those 14 years of Joseph's life spent in prison as a slave, it didn't look like he was bearing much fruit. But we can be absolutely certain that God was at work, shaping him, forming him, teaching him, humbling him, learning patience, perseverance, faithfulness, fruit that would set him up for a season that was beyond the horizon, for a future that he couldn't see, for a future that was beyond his imaginings, his expectations. And there's this little moment that I love, this little moment that takes place in Genesis 41, 49, and it's easy to miss it. So the seven years of plenty are, are happening and Joseph, like his plan, he, he started gathering up all the grain and he's in charge. And so his job is to keep record of all the grain and to make sure that it goes into all the storehouses. And he's counting up the bags. That's what the Bible tells us. And I, I can picture Joseph, you know, with his clipboard and his pen and he's trying to be really diligent and, and he's desperately trying to keep track of all this grain and all these bags. And, and here's a man. Here's a man who knows hunger. Here's a man who, who has known emptiness. Here's a man who knows what desperation and nothingness feels like. And I can picture Joseph there, and he's not wanting to waste a single grain. He's trying to keep track. And then verse 29 tells us that eventually, Joseph, he just throws down the clipboard and he gives up. He's like, I, I just can't, I just can't keep, I just can't keep up. It tells us he stops counting because there is so much grain. It says, Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain. Like the sand on the sea, it was so much that he stopped 
keeping records because it was beyond measure. Joseph, who has known nothing, finds himself in a season of abundance, immeasurably more. That's our God. That's our God. He takes us through these different seasons, some dark, some difficult, but the promise is immeasurably more. We can trust that God is watching over us. We can trust that God is walking with us. We can trust that God is working in us. I don't know what season you're in right now, but I know that God is in it with you. I want to finish before we pray just with this, just this little sense that I had. Three years ago, um, I wanted to invigorate my prayer life and I'd heard a friend tell me that they had got a dog because walking the dog had helped them pray. And I thought this is a great idea, but Tim said no to the dog because he thought that he would have to pick up the poo, which I thought was a bit ironic given that I've spent the last eight years picking up poo. But anyway, we decided instead that I'd get a treadmill because I also wanted to get fit at the same time. So it kind of worked together and treadmills don't poo. So that's good. So for the last few years, um, I've, I get up early and I, I go for a run on my treadmill and it's become this really precious God time for me. There's something about running, you know, the narrative of running, you know, like Hebrews 12 about running the race, the cloud of witnesses, fixing our eyes on Jesus. I, lo I love it. And I've thought about those verses a lot as I've been running on that treadmill and I'm sweating it out, asking God to speak and the thing is about my treadmill, it's got this little screen that's just below eye view. And on that screen, it calculates certain measurements. It calculates how many calories I'm burning, how far I've run, and how long I've been running. I should point out, I am not an athlete. I, I have no intention of running the London Marathon. I, I run for 30 minutes. That's it. I've never increased it. It's 30 minutes. In fact, the first five minutes of the run, I think I'm gonna die. Every single time, I'm like, I am literally gonna die right now. And then I get to about 10 minutes and I kind of get into my groove and I'm running and by minute 15, I'm like Hussein Bolt, I'm Forrest Gump, I'm absolutely going for it. And then by minute 25, it's just a dogfight to the bitter end. But the thing is about this little screen, below my sight line is it's become a real distraction. It's a bit of a hindrance, to be honest, because I keep getting distracted by the measurements. Rather than fixing my eyes on Jesus, I'm drawn to the screen. And you know, it's interesting to see how many calories I'm burning, like, oh yeah, how, how good is this making me look? Or how far have I run? You know, have I got any faster? No, never mind. But the thing I find most distracting is the time. Every, literally every few moments, I find my eyes looking, how long have I run? How long have I run? And I've challenged myself every now and again to, to try and go for at least one minute without looking at the street, screen, but it's so hard. It's so hard. And I find myself thinking over and over again, how long? How long to go? And I just wonder if there are people here, and that's your season, it's how long? How long? How long, God? How long is this season going to last? How long am I going to be praying for my friend to, to find a spouse, to, 
to get pregnant? How long until that person I love knows Jesus? How long am I going to be making the same mistakes again? How long until I can let go of this anger and this bitterness? How long before I can forgive that person? How long am I going to be stuck in this job, in this circumstance? And I want to pray. I think for some people, today is a prayer of breakthrough. It's a moment where God will provide a breakthrough. I really believe that today. God will provide a breakthrough moment. But that's just for some because I think there are others. And for you, it's perseverance. God needs to come and breathe grace and perseverance and faithfulness in prayer into this season. So if that's you, I wonder if the worship team and, and Tom, do you want to come up? If, if that's you, would you just stand where you are? If you know, it might not be that many people. If you know that for you it's a how long season, just be brave and stand up. That's it. Just stand where you are. It could be, for, it could be lots of different reasons. 